Psalm 65, verse 4, uh, this verse encompasses everything that we're going to talk about today. So I thought we would just read it and then explore the meaning and the dynamics of it. Verse 4 says, How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. Let's pray one more time, please. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and, oh Lord, would you please give us a glimpse of the beauty of your temple, that is, your presence, that our hearts would be enthralled again. I know that there are some in our church and partially in every heart in this place that has drifted away from your love. And so we sing, though we may wander, bring us back again. Lord, we confess to you our wandering heart. Lord, we confess that we are, as Job says, we are breath. We are wind. We are fickle. And so we're so grateful today for a, a constant and concrete love that does not fail. And that no matter how much we stray, no matter how much we may wander and how much we may lose sight of that beautiful vision of your glory and grace that we were first enthralled with and no matter how much we may have lost sight of the fact, as James says, that we have been forgiven of our sin. Would you remind us today, set us aright, set us back on track, help us to think the thoughts of God after you. Help us to think rightly about these things that we are been exploring here with the doctrines of grace and the sovereignty of God and your electing love and the total depravity and inability of man because, Lord, above everything, we want to have a biblical, comprehensive, consistent worldview. And, Lord, we know that we live in a world of uncertainty. We know that we live in a world filled with logical fallacies. We know we live in a world where there are a million different worldviews and none of them are consistent like yours. And so, God, we pray for fortification. We pray for solidarity. We pray that you would hedge us in, encompass us, be, a, be about us, be around us, be our fortress, our refuge, be that satisfying source of living water. Give us abundant life, Lord, we pray, in your Son. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Open up the eyes of our heart. Give us that enlightenment that we need to see beautiful things from your law. Oh, Father, rid us of our spiritual blindness today. Rid us. Let the scales that often build around our spiritual eyes. We pray those scales would fall off as we study and as we gaze at your beauty. May we perceive the truth today. May we see that you are altogether lovely. May we see that you are a God of glory. So glory, so beautiful, 
that is so glorious that the angels would hide their feet out of shame in themselves. So beautiful and brilliant and the splendor, the effulgence of your glory, so magnificent and bright and so blazing in glory that the angels have to shield their glorified eyes because they can't behold the splendor of your beauty. God, we ask that you would restore to us a love for who you are in truth. We don't want the God of our own imagination. Lord, we don't want to fall in love with the image that we have erected in our own heart, in our own mind. We don't want to love the God that we have created. We want to love you as you truly are. We want to love you as you've revealed yourself to be with all of the complexities that that poses for us. Because you are altogether holy, you are altogether other, you are altogether unlike us. And Lord, we confess our creatureliness. And that because we are your creatures, because we are finite, oh God, we need your help. We need your mercy. We need for you to remember that we are but dust. We need for you to pity us today to have mercy on us and bring down your sovereign spirit into this place and into our hearts and into our minds to give us illumination because we are cluttered and clouded and confused, left to ourselves. Lord, we don't see as we ought to. And so, God, would you come and bring greater clarity to your word today? I pray a blessing over this church, a blessing over your people. I pray for those who are not your people today here that they would become your people, that you would draw them to yourself by your invincible grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we have already looked at several aspects of the doctrines of grace, which is what we're studying as a church. And typically, our church, we normally are going through a book of the Bible. We just finished 2 Corinthians, and that's what we do. We go through the text of Scripture systematically. We go passage by passage, line upon line, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, to be washed by the water of God's Word. But we've taken time now to reflect on what I think is an important issue for us, and that is to understand that the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of Calvinism, as they've been called, as they've been historically known, that we look upon the doctrines of grace and see in them the beauty that is contained therein. That we do not just simply relegate the doctrine of the sovereignty of Christ, the atonement, the extent of the atonement to controversy, but that it becomes something that we cherish something that you find to be beautiful, as difficult and as perplexing as it may be, that you would find in these doctrines the majesty of God, the glory of God, the transcendence of God, the greatness of God, that you would be able to orient your life around a God-centered life instead of a man-centered life, which is what our humanistic nature and our humanistic culture feeds and fosters. 
so that we have to put it to death with the Word of God so that our worldview is not essentially man-centered, so that you and I are not at the center of the universe. God is the center of all things. And so, as we've looked at all these doctrines, this next doctrine, which I've entitled God's Invincible Grace, which is just talking about irresistible grace, historically defined irresistible as irresistible grace is, or what has been historically called irresistible grace, I think it's important for us maybe to give just a simple definition of what do theologians mean when they speak of irresistible grace. This is a, a simple definition that I came up with that I wanted to read to you. Irresistible grace means that God's grace overcomes man's unbelief and rebellion, giving him the ability to believe in the gospel through the sovereign power of regeneration. And so that is what irresistible grace is really all about. It's about overcoming our rebellion. It's about overcoming, overcoming our natural state, our natural disposition. What we as sinners and as humans who are fallen in Adam are prone to do left to ourselves. Which, as Ecclesiastes says, God created man upright, but man sought out many devices. And then ever since then, man has been seeking out many devices. So I want to look at three aspects of the doctrine and the concept of God's grace so that we can have a larger, comprehensive, biblical, theological understanding of irresistible grace. And I want to look at the grace of God being extended, and I want to look at the grace of God being rejected, and I want to look at the grace of God being received. Very simple. Three simple points that you can talk about tonight at supper. God's grace extended, God's grace rejected, and God's grace received. So, first of all, the grace of God extended. As with all of the doctrines of grace, there are many people who have many, many misunderstandings about the doctrine of irresistible grace, like with every point of doctrine. They misunderstand what is historically been uh, meant by these doctrines, and so that many people believe in many, many false caricatures and false ideals of what is meant by irresistible grace. Some people believe that irresistible grace means that the grace of God has never, ever been resisted that the grace of God has never, ever been rejected by anybody. Well, of course, that is absolutely patently false, and that is never what Reformed theology has ever meant by irresistible grace. And I'll come back to that point more closely. But Scripture teaches that God's grace should be extended to everyone, that the grace of God should be extended to both God's elect and, God's, or, or, and the non-elect in the same way that it should be preached to them with equal zeal and equal accuracy. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, it was Jesus who said, Many are called, but few are chosen. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God goes back to Jesus. Jesus more than anyone understood and believed and preached and promulgated and taught the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and of divine election. He was not ashamed of it. 
Many believers are ashamed of it today, and I understand. It's a controversial point of doctrine. If you're sitting, as I have with many folks, I mean, this last speaking engagement that I had in, um, where were we, Trish? We were in uh, Southern, uh, South Carolina, and I sat down with an Arminian pastor who I thought, okay, this gentleman doesn't believe it as I believe, so I'll just kind of keep it down. <laughs> I'll try not to make a point of it. As soon as we sat down, he says, I have a bunch of questions for you about Calvinism, this whole sovereignty of God thing. So I'll go, there goes that. And we did for the next hour, two hours. We, we ended up fellowshipping and talking about Scripture and getting into Scripture, and I think I did some good. His wife almost got up and left the table in a good way. She didn't get mad, but she just said, I'm having a hard time right now because, you know, we were showing her Scripture after Scripture, but uh, a lot of people look at this subject as so controversial, they won't even talk about it. But Jesus didn't see it that way. Jesus saw it that it was the bedrock of the gospel, the bedrock of the gospel. Election did not keep Jesus or the apostles either from talking about it or from preaching the gospel to everyone, obviously. Matter of fact, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, knowing and understanding the doctrine of election, the apostle, the apostle Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I mean, everything? What he was talking about there was in, in the context of his ministry, preaching and promulgating the gospel, suffering, enduring, hardship in the context of furthering the gospel. Paul says, I endure all of that I go to prison. You read the litany of sufferings there in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul gets into a whole list of everything that he suffers. The shipwreck, the sleepless nights, the fastings, the beatings, the stonings, the whippings, the imprisonments, the betrayal at the hands of so-called brethren, false brethren. He says, all of that, I do all of that because I know that God has his people. And therefore, it is a great confidence builder to preach the gospel knowing God has a people for his own possession, and I mean to awaken them. That is the way the gospel works. But in fact, the gospel has really two effects. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You'd be Familiar with this passage since we just went through the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, to see this double effect, this dual effect of the gospel and of the gospel minister, the gospel believe, the believer, the Christian who spreads the gospel. Paul says there, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma of death to death and to the other an aroma of life to life. And who is adequate for these things? An amazing, amazing text. Now, there's several things that I want to point out here. First, the truth that the believer, especially the minister, the person, the evangelist that would minister and advance the message, the gospel, he or she carries with him or her this divine fragrance, this Christocentric fragrance that you are a fragrance of Christ. If you would, you reek of Christ or you ought to. 
And when you go and you spread the knowledge of him in every place, like he says in verse 14, uh, you are that fragrance. You smell of that. Uh, uh, The natural man can detect that that's what you're about. Your family at the family reunions and your your fellow employees at work and people in your neighborhood and people in this culture, they know a Christian when they really see one. They understand the conviction. They can detect that you have been with Jesus. Secondly, because of our ambassadorship, the message possesses a double purpose, to affect those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So be prepared to have an effect on two categories of people, the saved and the perishing. And thirdly, the fragrance we carry speaks of life or death. That is to say, people here in the gospel message either hope, that is, the hope of God making them free, and others hear only death. They smell death. They hear death. They detect death. Those who detect the aroma of death are those who hear in the gospel not hope but a threat, a threat that God would keep them from their personal ambitions, that God would keep them from their personal passions, their personal pursuits, their personal lusts. Paul repeats the same principle in his first letter to the Corinthians when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, same principle. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. He says, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. That represents the perishing. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That is the difference when someone is genuinely being called, or if you would, drawn irresistibly to himself. They hear in the message, and that by the grace of God, they see the power of God embodied in the gospel. They see the wisdom of God supremely embodied in the cross. The cross no longer represents for those who are being saved foolishness. It no longer represents just a religious icon, a religious symbol. It now represents the very wisdom of God. Oh, the great things that God has done in order to save and redeem sinners to himself. That is what the cross will come to represent to those who are being saved. We preach the gospel to everybody because we know that the gospel has these various effects. We know ultimately that God is going to use the gospel to draw his people and to harden those who are not his people. Romans chapter 11 verse 17 reflecting on what happened to the Jews. Why is it that so many of them are perishing? Paul says the elect were called, chosen, and the rest are hardened, affirmed and confirmed in their sin and in their unbelief. This is why Jesus can say, many are called, but few are chosen. Knowing all of this, Jesus, of course, exhibited the universal call of the gospel better than anybody. Jesus says, as you well know, come to me, All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is Jesus inviting and proclaiming this invitation to life to everyone, to all the multitudes, both comprised of elect and non-elect alike, that they should come to him. And in the Gospels, you know the word come, come to me, is a synonym of faith. Jesus is saying, believe in me, in other words. Put your trust in me. Put your confidence in me. Abandon hope in all else, is what he's saying. Lay down your life. Matter of fact, hate your life. Hate your life. Trust not in yourself. Don't lean on your own understanding. Abandon self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and trust solely in me. He goes on in John 7, 37 to say, there John says on that great day, the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. We need to do more of that in our evangelism. Stand up at UNT and Denton or wherever else we go, Wally and the colleges here at Collin and Fairview, wherever else we go, and say, are you thirsty? Have you had enough of your sin? Are you dissatisfied and disenchanted with the lifestyle that you've chosen? Are you weary? Are you frustrated? In other words, as the Puritans would say, are you miserable yet? Because that's all there is outside of Jesus Christ, is all there is is misery, darkness, frustration, death. Now, the gospel is extended to all, but the gospel is also, or the grace of God is also rejected. So turn to John chapter 10. Of course, in the doctrine of irresistible grace, we do not in any way mean that God's grace can never be resisted. Oh, it is. Every single person in this room has resisted the grace of God at one point or another. For 19 years of my life, I resisted the grace of God, wanted nothing to do with it. As those that I described earlier, the perishing, I saw it as a threat. God getting in the way of what I want, what I want to do, what I want to pursue, who I want to be. God wanting to tell me what to do. That's a threat. Only the sovereign grace of God could melt a heart of stone like mine and turn it into obedience unto the Lordship of Christ. Because inherent in the preaching of the gospel, God has ordained both the effectual calling of the elect and the hardening of the non-elect, we see repeatedly that the gospel is offered to those who indeed and in fact reject the grace of God and repudiate it. Here in John chapter 10 is a perfect example. The Jews then gathered around him. This is John 10, 24, verse 24. They gathered around him. And they were saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Very strong sovereignty passage. 
Notice the logic here. And the grammar cannot be undone. The logic of this passage is saying, not as the Arminian would have us to believe, that the causal agent is unbelief. And that because you don't believe, therefore you're not my sheep. As a matter of fact, it's the complete opposite, folks. Look closely at what Jesus said. You do not believe. Here's the explanation. Because you are not my sheep. And you know that sheep is synonymous with elect. Sheep is synonymous with his people. Sheep is synonymous with those who believe in him those whom he has chosen. And so that's the way the logic works. It's a complete opposite of what the Arminian argument would suggest. When the apostles preached, they got the same result. Look at Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I know I'm putting your hands to work during this sermon series, and I don't apologize for that. (laughs) Can I be honest with you? I love to hear the sound of Bible pages turning encouraging to me as a pastor, as a preacher. Acts chapter 17, verse 32, the same sort of phenomenon we find with the preaching of the apostles. The apostolic preaching of the cross was met with the same dual effect that Jesus was. Acts 17, 32 says, now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. That word means to mock. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, verse 24, 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So we have here a great encouragement for you and I because these these three categories of people is exactly what you and I face today. This is the exact same challenge that we face today in evangelism. There are those who reject the gospel outright, who want nothing to do with it. And we've seen that in our evangelistic efforts. We've seen those who would only mock, scoff, and walk away. And there are others who are interested. They're interested. We shall hear you again concerning this. I, I always love it when I see at UNT the same students coming back to hear our preaching, the same guys that were so heatedly debating us from the, the week prior, come back to hear us again. <laughs> it's because they want to hear this matter. They want to hear, they want to listen to this again. They're not decided. It's not that they've outright rejected it, but nevertheless, They still are not willing to identify with Christ. And the third category. The third group are those who are effectually drawn by the Father, irresistibly drawn by His grace, and thus they join Him, and they believe, and they believe. Perhaps no other passage sort of underlines this point of the grace of God being rejected than Acts chapter 7. As a matter of fact, this is one of the favorite proof texts of the Arminian camp. They go to Acts chapter 7, verse 51, and they say, see, this is emphatic proof that the grace of God can be rejected. 
Acts chapter 7, verse 51. This is Stephen's uh, redemptive historical sermon (laughs) where he unfolds the entire panoply of God's redemption and how it culminates in Christ. And he gets to chapter 50, uh, verse 51, and he addresses his, per, his persecutors directly. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. And of course, those who would object to irresistible grace, they would say, see, the word resisting is right there. <laughs> you are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have, be- you have now become. Wow. Stephen, speaking with incredible conviction, knowing that this group of Jews can kill him very easily, put him to death for what he just said. And in fact, they did. And he didn't run away from persecution. He faced it like a man, and he was ushered into heaven with Jesus awaiting him himself. Beautiful picture of the believer's hope. But this is the irony of the argument, is that the fact that Scripture emphatically teaches that the grace of God can be resisted, that the grace of God has been rejected, that there are those who will continually reject, continually disbelieve the gospel and resist the grace of God is actually the basis for irresistible grace. What do I mean? In other words, because man resists in his depravity, the nature of man is such that he will always resist the grace of God. Hopefully we established that when we looked at the doctrine of total depravity. He will always, and of necessity, and by his nature, he will always resist the grace of God left to himself. But that is precisely why the invincible grace of God is needed. It is necessary to overcome the resistance. Man is not going to figure it out on his own. He's not going to sit at home and say, you know what? I need to rethink why I'm resisting the grace of God. It doesn't make any sense. You know, the Bible teaches there's a whole theology. The natural man doesn't do that unless, of course, he is enabled to do it. Unless, of course, he is awakened. Unless, of course, he is being irresistibly drawn to Christ. John Murray, I know you guys know that John Murray is one of my favorite because of his little book, Redemption, Accomption, Applied, and my wife laughed at me this week. She said, I can't believe you recommended Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied. She said, I can't even understand chapter one. And so that might lead to me doing a whole um, sort of a a book study on that. I don't know. We'll see. But, um, But she's right. It, 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 it is difficult reading, but like I said, it's worth it. John Piper said once, if you, if you rake, you get leaves. If you dig, you get diamonds, right? So yeah, you can rake all day long. You can read all the popular, you know, Christian literature that's on the top selling list, and you can know how to, how to have a wonderful life and you know, how to be, and I don't want to go down that road. Just make me angry, so I'll stop right there. 
Listen to what John Murray does and how he explains the connection that resisting the grace of God is the basis for the doctrine of irresistible grace. You guys, are you guys tracking with me on that? Listen to what he says. When we speak of irresistible grace, it is not to assert that all grace is irresistible, nor is it to deny the numberless respects in which grace is resisted and resisted to the culmination of resistance in everlasting doom. He says, in fact, the truth of and the necessity for irresistible grace may be most cogently demonstrated in the premise of resistible grace. He says this, this is crucial. The enmity of the human heart is most virulent. It is most opposed to God at the point of the supreme revelation of God's glory, i.e., through Christ. So deep-seated is this persistent uh, and persistent is the contradiction that is, that man would resist the grace of God at the highest point in Christ. He says this contradiction is so great that the Savior, as the embodiment of grace, is rejected. It is when we recognize this that the need for irresistible grace is perceived. In other words, because of total depravity, man, because he's so wicked and evil, and so sinful, at the height of what God would show him to be wise and powerful and beautiful and glorious and magnificent, the greatest display of the grace of God that God could ever show a man at the cross in Jesus Christ. Man rejects that most precious truth. He rejects the light. He doesn't come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. The more that man rejects the grace of God, the more proof we have that what is needed is a sort of invincible grace, grace that cannot be resisted and ultimately and finally rejected. You know where the doctrine of irresistible grace comes from? It comes from the Old Testament. You knew that. It comes from the prophecies about a new covenant. Because the prophecies about a new covenant are about the prophecies of a new heart. The prophecies for a new covenant are about the prophecies of taking out a heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. What does the heart of flesh symbolize? It symbolizes that now you have a heart that is responsive. Now you have a heart that is susceptible to the commands of God that you can now delight in the law of God, whereas before you only hated his law. You scorned his law. As in Acts chapter 17, you sneered at his, at his commandments. And that's what the new covenant is all about. God performing spiritual heart surgery in a person, taking out that stony heart that is irresponsive to the call of God. And God does this. So not only, is the God, not only is God's grace extended, rejected, but it is also received. It is received because of this new covenant prophecy that it would be received. And maybe the strongest place that I can take you to see that is in John chapter 6. Turn with me to John chapter 6. Because there we have a link back to the Old Testament prophecies about the new covenant. Now from a 
just from a human, external, visible, natural standpoint, John chapter 6 represents a very costly point in the ministry of Jesus, a very costly time. The sayings of Jesus in John 6 cost him dearly, cost him dearly. You know that because at John chapter 6, verse 66, look what it says. It's one of the reasons why it's 666. Look what happens. No, I'm joking. There's no theological connection. There's no textual critical evidence for this. This is just me trying to get you to follow along. But at John 66, it says, 666, it does say, as a result of his many, uh, as a result of this, that is the things that he said, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So that the tw- so that Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away also? Do you want to walk away? And of course, Peter goes on to say, where do we go? There's nothing to go back to. Now we know where eternal life resides. We rather accept the truth as difficult as it may be. This is the truth. This is where life is found. Where else are we going to go? That's right. There is nowhere else to go. So we have to go to Jesus. In other words, exactly what Paul experienced in Athens is what Paul is or Jesus is experiencing right here in John chapter 6. There are some that reject. There are some that listen. There are some that believe. In John 6, Jesus makes a series of controversial statements about the necessity of faith in him for salvation, but also about the sovereignty of God and how it works and how it's working out this salvation. He introduces the idea of the covenant of redemption when he talks about the fact that God in his sovereign decree gives to the Son a certain group of people as his own possession in election. And so consequently, it is this group of people to who, who, who are given to the Son who will ultimately come to him by faith. Look at verse 37. 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Now that is a very very potent passage because, as I said, it refers back to this what theologians would look upon as a covenant that was made in eternity, father, son, coming together, making an agreement, a pact. They got together and they made a plan. How are we to redeem people? Well, the father will have to choose, give to the son. The son will have to redeem And through the the ministry of the Spirit, those who are redeemed will have to be sealed for the day of redemption or else no one gets saved. That's the way that it has to work. All that the Father gives me will come to me. It's not a maybe. It's not a hopefully they will come. It is emphatic. They will come. These that come are according, uh, according to the rest of this passage are those that are also drawn. Look at verse 44. No one, he says, can come to me unless, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again, he goes on to say in verse 65, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So in other words, 
one aspect of this verse, verse 44, is emphasizing God's ability to overcome man's inability. No one can come, of course, unless he is drawn. And there the word drawn, as R.C. Sproul has pointed out, speaks of overcoming some resistance. It's not exactly, it's not exactly that what this passage is saying is that man comes into the kingdom kicking and screaming, saying, no, 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 I don't want to be saved. I don't know if that's the most accurate point. But what he, but it is referring to is overcoming man's rebellion, overcoming his deadness, overcoming his hostility, overcoming his enmity with God, the fact that he's alienated from God. That is what is overcome by God drawing us irresistibly to himself. I mean, can I just reflect on my own testimony? I want you to reflect on yours. I remember on that day, I was coming. I don't know how. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I wasn't raised by Christian parents. I, no one took me to church. I would never go to church. You couldn't drag me into a church. I never went to Bible study. I didn't know anything about Christianity. And one night, by the sovereign decree of God, I was drawn to the Father. <laughs> it wasn't on my to-do list that morning. I didn't wake up and say, you know what? I'm going to lose all my friends today. I'm going to stop that party lifestyle I was engaged in. I'm going to change my I'm going to become a real religious person today. By the end of the day, I'm going to start going to this church. You know, the first time I went to church, I went to the 745 service. 745, people. If you can't make it here for Sunday school at 1.30, shame on you. 745, everyone in the church has a gray head. All the old folks are there. Beautiful. I loved it. I didn't know anybody. I wouldn't talk to anybody when I got saved. I walked into church, and I thought people were so holy, I thought women were like angels. I was terrified to look at a Christian woman. I thought Chuck Smith was God. I was terrified of pastors. I was terrified at the fact that somebody was about to thunder the Word of God. And one of the, one of the first times I went to church, I listened to a man preach the gospel with great, great ardor, zeal, passion, and I was terrified. I wept from start to finish. So much so that the people next to me in the pew had to pull me aside to see if I was okay. I hadn't been raised in this. I don't know anything about this. How is it that my heart has done a complete 180? All of a sudden, I'm going to church, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, I'm even listening to corny Christian music. Only God could do that. That is, and I know that you each have your testimonies, and I wish that, well, I don't because church doesn't comprise of just testimony telling, but you know what I mean. I'd love to hear all your stories. That's one of the things we do in membership is we listen to your story. How did you become a Christian? What happened? It's a great way for us to get to know you. Turn with me to Isaiah 54. We're almost done here, but Jesus talks about all of this sovereign grace. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And he says in John chapter 6, in verse 50 or 45, he, said, he quotes an Old Testament passage out of Isaiah 54, and he says, they shall all be taught of God. Why is he quoting Isaiah 54? 
Isaiah 54, verse 13. That's what he's quoting. Where did Jesus get the inclination to just take a verse out of Isaiah 54 and use it in his sermon or in his saying at this point? Well, if you know a little bit about the background of Isaiah 54, it goes all the way back to Isaiah 40. That is the scope of the prophecy. And there, Jerusalem is introduced as a woman in need, a woman in need of comfort, a woman in need of salvation, a woman in need of beauty and beautification. And it's a prophecy of the new covenant. And this beauty is what we now experience in Christ. Look at Isaiah 54, verse 11. Oh, afflicted one, talking about Jerusalem, storm-tossed, not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony, which speaks of some type of uh, turquoise, some sort of emerald. He says, and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystals and your entire wall of precious stones. All your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. So Jesus, uh, he's quoting this, an aspect of this prophecy here in Isaiah to say this beautification of God's people is fulfilled when God draws a person and brings them irresistibly to Jesus Christ and you, be, you begin to experience what it means to be taught by God. Now that connects us back to other prophecies of the new covenant that you probably know very well, like Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah, if you turn there, Jeremiah 31, the same sorts of things are said. Jeremiah 31 is where the new covenant is found. And there we are told in verse 34, again, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Jesus is grounding all that he's saying here in John 6 in this new covenant phenomenon that is about to take place. That God is going to do such an incredible work. He's going to take people and draw them to himself irresistibly. He will teach them. In other words, he will open their mind. To understand so that if you are in the new covenant you don't need me to teach you how to know the how to know the Lord you know the Lord you have a relationship with the Lord I think it's something like what John says in 1st John chapter 2 verse 26 and 27 you have need of no one to teach you you have an anointing from the Holy One he teaches you all things in other words you have a personal priesthood with God you have access. You have a direct relationship with God. You don't need to go through a mediator anymore. You, the, there is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. So God has taught us salvifically in Christ. And the good news for you and I, and we'll end here, the good news for you and I is that what that means is it means that we have, oh, the most Beautiful assurance, if you go back to John chapter 6, the most incredible assurance, folks, that if we've been drawn, if we've been taught, then we know that we will be raised. 
We will be raised. If you would, Romans chapter 8 represents for the Apostle Paul uh, uh, what, what has been called the great chain of the golden chain of redemption. Well, John chapter 6 is like Jesus' chain of redemption here. In other words, if you're called, if you're drawn, you will be glorified. That's what it's teaching. Look at verse 37 again, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And that is not impersonal because these are impersonal pronouns, it. When we're talking about people, what's Jesus talking about here? He's probably talking about the entity of the church. But verse 40, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him, here we are, personal Jesus right here, speaking of us, he will have eternal life, and I myself, Jesus is going to raise you from the dead. I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is why we could go to, this is why we could die with assurance. As we sing in our hymn, we hope to die shouting, the Lord will provide. We are not stepping into an unknown dark abyss of eternity when we cross the threshold, the river of life into death. We have the full confidence that Jesus himself is going to take our hand like the good shepherd that he is, and he's going to raise us up with him on the last day. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Father, oh God, we simply bow our heads in reverence and fear. We are so grateful for union with Christ. We're thankful and we're hopeful and we're filled with joy that you have given us such a glorious future. The towers of this world are crumbling. We know that. We see it all around us. The form of this world is passing away, John says. But we have a hope that endures. And our hope will never, ever disappoint us. Lord, help us to see that you've done this by your invincible grace as you called us to the finish line. You called us not just so that we would be saved for a short time and then finally of our own doing utterly lost. Salvation is not a gamble. Salvation is not a probability. Salvation is not a risk. Salvation is the certainty of what you have done. And so we thank you for the blessed assurance that you give us by making us one with your son. It's in his name that we pray, dear Lord. Amen.